Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone. Thank you for joining me for this week's teaching. I am Krista Bontrager. I'm a Christian theologian, a Bible teacher, public apologist, and this is the channel where I offer teaching related to the historic Christian faith, as well as social commentary on contemporary issues, but with a theological lens and a theological point of view. Now, a couple of months ago, I did a teaching about what to look for in a church. I get that question with a fair amount of frequency. And this is especially relevant if you're transitioning churches or wondering whether you should transition to a different situation. And at the end of that teaching, I said that the most important thing to look for in a church is godly elders, godly leadership. Now, why did I say that? That's a little peculiar. A lot of people are looking for great worship, inspiration, practical and relevant messages. Looking for godly elders is not very sexy. It's just, it's not like something you would immediately think, ah, yes, this is the key to a healthy local church. So, so why did I say that? Well, here's why. Because every single Christian listening to this podcast right now is going to face a major life crisis at some point. You might someday have a child, God forbid, who deconstructs away from the faith. Your spouse might deconstruct away from the faith. You might face a some kind of faith crisis, health crisis, mental health crisis. You might wake up one day and realize your spouse has a profound mental illness. Now what do you do? Your child might come out as gay or trans. What will you do then? Where will you go for help? How will you be resourced? How will you be counseled? This, dear friends, is why I think that the most important thing to look for in a local church is godly and theologically informed leadership. Because at some point, you are going to need their godly counsel and support to walk with you through a difficult season. And the time to figure that all out is ideally not when you're going through the crisis. Instead, you want to already have been walking with these people in life, being known by them, having strong bonds of kinship, long before the crisis and difficult season sets in. Because here's the real truth. When you get into a crisis situation, parachurch ministries can direct you to some resources. I'll never forget a young man who wrote into the ministry very early on in the history of the Center for Biblical Unity. He wanted to know if he should break off his engagement because he was realizing his fiance was woke, was had been shaped and discipled by the critical social theories. Here's the thing. 
Monique and I and other parachurch ministries, we can direct you to some general resources, some general principles, but we can't walk with you in the day to day. We can't sit down with you and tell you whether or not to break up with your girlfriend because of a certain doctrinal issue. This is where you need godly counselors, biblical leaders in your life to walk with you through that situation and on that road. Godly leadership is a vital component within the local church context to help the regular Christian be able to navigate the choppy waters, the reality of living in a fallen world. We need their teaching, their help, their biblical counsel. Historically speaking, many Christians would know their priest or their pastor for most of their lives. But Americans these days were very migratory. We move around. And if we don't like what a pastor says or does, we'll move churches, sometimes with ease, okay? We are a very migratory people. And this is why we need to give some thought and intentionality about how we're connected to our local church. How are we known, even in the tough times, so that we can receive that godly counsel, theologically informed counsel, okay? So last week, I did some general teaching about the biblical instructions about elders and deacons. Today, we're going to get into more of the practical application of what this starts to look like in the world, in the real world. I've asked my friend, Pastor Jeremy Bannister, to come on and help us with this big and important topic. Pastor Jeremy has been grinding it out for the sake of the gospel at the same congregation for over two decades. I've come to value his wisdom because he is so strongly and unapologetically guided by the word of God. And he will let you know the real. He will tell you what the word of God has to say about a matter. He's given so much thought to the issue of shepherding and leadership, uh, not in a superficial way, not in like, here, let me give you the five easy points in a, in a book that's 50 pages long and we're going to break it all down. Not that kind of thought. This is like deep, decades long thought about shepherding and leadership. And I really want to give him a platform to help inspire other pastors, other elders, other Christian leaders. And with that, I want to say welcome to my friend, Pastor Jeremy. Welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Good. I know it's a little long commentary, but I want people to really uh, understand where we are going in this discussion. Um, right. And I know you've been on my podcast before. It's been a couple of years. So maybe let's start mm -hmm. with a little background about you. Tell us about your work there in Albuquerque. Sure. I've, I have been a pastor at the same church, Heights Christian Church here in Albuquerque for 22 years. And it's kind of evolved over that period of time. I was originally hired as a youth pastor and did that for seven years solely as a youth pastor and grew into a role of co-pastor where I was still over youth, but I was also co-leading the church with a good pastor friend of mine who was also within the church. We did that together for 14 years. And this past year, I became the sole lead pastor of the Heights Christian Church. So we've we've seen kind of a, a morphing of 
of my role as I've stepped into larger um, responsibility within our congregation. And uh, it's been an adventure. It really has been. So um, I've got a great congregation, love the people who are there and literally have lived life with them through all the life of my child uh, of, of my children right now. So it's really cool seeing them now all grown up, but they've known one church family this whole time. Now they're grown up. Some of them are a different church because of, you know, where they met and where, where they're uh, married and stuff like that. But seeing that, that perpetuation of faith is really, really cool to see just within my own family in our church context. It's very rare these days to be in a situation where you have a pastor there that long that you're almost kind of going on the second generations now mm -hmm. of and seeing the fruit of long-term discipleship. And that's really a big theme of what we're going to get into here. So in the setup I did last week in the teaching, we talked about elders, what scripture has to say about elders. If you were to think about kind of using secular vernacular, like the job description of an elder, you know, what does do elders do based, you know, on that biblical description, but of, you know, Titus and Timothy, but how does that begin mm -hmm. to translate into real life? What do they do exactly? Well, the, they oversee, and just in, as a general function, they oversee the spiritual uh, well-being and the maturity of the church. And so everything that we do within the body of Christ, the elders oversee, even, even the context of how, what programs you're going to have in the future. I know that, um, you know, we have both elders and we have deacons and there are different roles within that. But everything in the end comes up through the elders to be able to say, okay, these are the things that we're going to do to encourage our people to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. And everything kind of comes together and coalesces together. So you want people who are on the elder board who are number one, uh, can see the whole, can see the entirety of the whole of the body of Christ. And number two, are connected to the people within uh, the congregation that, that you find yourself a part of. Because an elder board that's detached from the people ends up being a spiritual leadership devoid of understanding the people that they're supposed to be shepherding. So there has to be a combination of understanding the whole of the congregation, as well as being interconnected personally with people whom they're shepherding on their own, that there's a personal aspect to it as well. So these are the, the two things that you see. So what you'll see is, uh, as, a, as a result of things, you'll have elders who are in positions of of leadership, but they're also in positions of teaching uh, within the the local congregation. They're they're in the lives of people within their congregation to help them and to help the pastor through um, the ministry of the church through these tough times. Like you had mentioned in your intro, talking about you want good elders that are able to to biblically evaluate situations that people are going through to be able to walk them through in a godly way and give them biblical counsel that's not based upon just their experience but based solely upon the word of god and if their experience mirrors that to be something to to be of of help to those who are in need so so what i hear in that in you know we're going to break this down even more but kind of a couple things i hear in that is that an elder has to not only be able to articulate what we believe and understand, you know, and have a mm -hmm. very robust Christian worldview and understanding, you know, doctrine and that sort of thing. They've also got to understand how to apply that 
biblically so that when people come to them, they're not just speaking out of, like you said, their own experience, their own opinions, what seems right to them or the latest book that they've read, rather that they really are conversant in the word of God, but then knowing how to build that bridge to this is how this applies and how we give godly counsel to people. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what they've got to do because these are people, you know, these are people that, that we're building relationship with, that we're doing life together with as we're walking toward maturity. And it's through those relational opportunities that we have these opportunities to teach both good things and bad things. I mean, sometimes we start talking about counseling. We, we sometimes only have the idea of counsel when you know, crisis comes up, but counsel comes in both directions. It also comes when good things are happening that we can put that in the mindset of, of praise to God and and see that as also part of our, our our growth in Jesus Christ. And so it's good that an elder can discern in both of those directions, because the idea is that pastors and, and uh, you know, prophets, apostles, when we look in in the scripture in uh, Ephesians 4, the whole reason that we exist within the church to have these positions is to move people to their works of service so that we might grow into maturity. And so all of these opportunities that we have as elders are to move those within our, uh, our, um, our relational uh, influence, if you will, uh, in Christ to a mature relationship to Christ. That's what we want. Yeah, we call that uh, good old-fashioned discipleship. <laughs> you yes. know, learning yes. how to walk in the ways of Jesus, live in the ways of Jesus, talk in the ways of Jesus. That's, I think, what you mean when you say, like, the elders are there to get the big picture, to make sure that everything in the church is there to support, really, the the growth and maturity Um of the people that are going there. I, I think that's so important because the goal is not let's get as many people in the pews as possible. Let's let's develop marketing campaigns to get our numbers exponentially out there. That's not the job of the elder. The primary job of the leadership team is getting people to spiritual maturity in the Lord, the relationship with the Lord. Absolutely. And, and that's, and that's that's the relational aspect that sometimes can be overlooked when we if you have a you know um a a business model can have lots of classes but lack the relationships you can get all the knowledge but none of the practical application and the practical application of of eldership comes with shepherding people and shepherding people it doesn't it doesn't work like a textbook you know every situation is a little bit different and so it takes discernment and that discernment first and foremost has to flow out of that elder's relationship with the lord and his knowledge of the uh of god's word and his strong relationship with christ so that he can lead others into that strong relationship whatever he might be finding himself in uh within the relationships in this of the congregation very good. All right, we're going to, last time I went over the scriptures in detail, I just want to refresh people's memory about 1 Timothy 3, and I want to encourage people to open their own Bibles, look at it in context. We're going to put it up on the screen here, but it says that overseer, and as we saw last week, that's another word for what we call today elders, an overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, which that's going to be an important issue we're going to probably want to talk some more about. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, 
but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Dropping down to verse six, not be a recent convert. I think that's another really important issue. Um, Verse seven, be of a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace or into the devil's trap. Um, Really quick here, we'll just keep reading through the deacons and then we can kind of compare and contrast. In the same way, deacons are worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they have to be biblically faithful. They've got to be understanding sound doctrine. They must be tested. And if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Uh, Deacon, verse 12, must be faithful to his wife and manage his children, his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. So we see a lot of overlap there. Between elders and deacons, Titus gives us a similar list on elders. Jeremy, talk to us a little bit about these lists as you reflect on ministry. Talk to us a little bit about these particular qualifications and what you see as their as their value as you're doing the work of ministry in a local church. Right. I I will tell you that the uh, the importance of this particular passage of Scripture, First Timothy chapter three, especially verses one through seven, as it pertains to elders, because that pertains to me as a pastor, um, has been a a guidepost for me and my family. The importance of realizing that if we look at this passage of Scripture, we're given an order of how to consider a an elder for ministry. We have you know God's first. Your, your spouse is second, your children are third. And then, then uh, you know, a little bit further in First uh, Timothy, if you go to First Timothy 5, 8, it says, he who does not provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And so you have provision that's in there as well. And then uh, finally, if those four qualifications are met, then they can serve as a minister. It's important to note that ministry happens after those four things are, are taking place. And I have found personally in my own life, this has been a guard for me that whenever things go kind of crazy in our marriage or crazy within ministry and our marriage, when it's you know this volatile combination combined together, it's always going back to these verses and being able to say, okay, where are we off at? You know, have I put the ministry above my relationship with my wife or my kids? Have I put my ministry or or confused my ministry with my relationship with God? It happens a lot of times with people in ministry. And I, I've fallen into that trap at times as well. And I think it's a it's a corrective for us to know those scriptures well, because that's how we get to go back and say, hey, if there's something wrong in this area, then I need to correct those things to, to make things right within ministry. But those are the things that have to be considered beforehand when you're stepping into that. And, and the deacon role is just as important, uh, even though deacons may be in more of a, what would be considered maybe a task-oriented ministry, it's still important that those deacons who are serving in that area are holding to the deep truths of Scripture, that you're still having scripturally sound people that are doing the 
tasks within the congregation that need to be done wherever you're serving at, because you never know when that service is going to turn into ministry opportunity Mm -hmm. and those people needing to be able to share the gospel of truth. I mean, we go back to Acts chapter uh, six and we Mm -hmm. see the setting aside of our, the first deacons that are there and they're, they're waiting tables for widows. And this is where we get our first martyr, you know, who, who had to be ready to share the deep, a theological truths of the scripture and a relationship with Christ to those who would be around him. So both are very important ministries within the within the context of the local church. And the value of that is recognizing this gives us a baseline of understanding what comes first for consideration, you know, for these roles. So one of the things that differentiates between elders and deacons is deacons must be conversant in sound doctrine. Like, like you said, you never know, you know, when you're going to be in a ministry situation where you got to share the gospel or you have to, you know, understand, articulate, like, why do we feed widows? Why do we help the poor? How, How do we serve? What's the biblical foundation for that? Elders are the ones who must be able to teach sound doctrine. They're really tasked with being the fence against right. heresy and preserving orthodoxy. But I don't hear a lot of people talk like this, that this is part of the job description of elders and deacons is that it is deeply connected to doctrine. When I hear a lot of conversations about elder recruitment, it's like, well, who's prominent in the community or who's prominent in the congregation? You know, let's find a doctor, a lawyer, someone who owns a business, somebody who stands out in leadership in secular ways. But what I think is so revolutionary about the Christian faith, so you can have somebody like Onesimus in the book of Philemon, who was a slave and became a Christian and his his master also became a Christian and Paul directs them that now their primary relationship is that of being brothers in the Lord. According to tradition, Onesimus went on to be a bishop. And so in the Christian faith, we don't seem to look to secular standards to appoint leaders. We look to, are they conversant and fluent in sound doctrine? And do they have these character qualities? It doesn't matter if you're a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, lawnmower man, or business owner. When you come into the church, here's the qualifications for ministry. I don't hear people talk like that. Well, and they're... To be very honest, in the American church, we don't talk like that for the most part. We have we have succumbed, I think, very much to, so to a secular model, and it shows a lot of times in our interactions with people. Because what we look for in many churches are, like you had mentioned earlier, those successful business people. And part of the reason for that is not just because this list in 1 Timothy 3 and and Titus 1 isn't always followed the way that it ought to be, even though it's kind of like a job description. I I think there's a bigger uh, issue at question here. It's that if I were to ask you, you know, what makes for a mature disciple of Christ, 
could you give those qualifications? It's one thing to say that we're conversant with the doctrines and the deep truths of the faith. It's a different thing to be able to say, okay, so what makes somebody mature? And I think that that is something that's left undefined, you know, in many, many churches. Many churches, you can say, well, we want mature people in there. And I can recognize when I think somebody is mature, but can I define what that definition is so that we can have others aspire to be mature? I think that's what that's a piece that's missing within the church. And when that piece is missing, we we tend to defa- default back to kind of a worldly standard because, okay, well, uh, do they have, you know, uh, are they successful in the world and are they a Christian? Well, then obviously they have a gift of leadership, but that doesn't necessarily make them mature. And so that definition of maturity, I think it ha- is is uh, a primary necessity for evaluating, number one, who is maturing and who might become a qualified elder or deacon coming over time. Yeah, that's that's really well stated. And just to build on that, for several years, Bob and I attended a church where the elders did have a very strong sense of doctrinal fidelity. They They guarded the faith, but they seemed to lack, and for lack of a better term, the fruit of the spirit, these these characteristics of, um, you know, the, the maturity, as you're saying, the character development. How do we walk in or weigh out that tension between biblical fidelity and, you know, the fruit of the spirit, the kindness and the compassion and the, the, the spiritual maturity and, and all of that, because it feels like in a lot of situations, I'm almost forced to choose. Like, do I want a biblically faithful church or do I want a church where leadership deals with me kindly? Like we got to get to a reality where both of those things can, can live together. Right. Right. And, and I, I would say some of this, Come, and I, I can't speak to your experience because I won't I sure, won't sure. Yeah. to do that. But but I think some of this comes down to relationship as well, because sometimes you can have biblically faithful, but then detach from the people. And, and that tends to become a relational nightmare. So people are brought in and they just deal with hard situations. And it just seems like it's a steamroll, right? From, from a congregant's perspective. And, and then on the other end, you can be so relational that you just allow important things to go by without accountability. And there has to be a balance between those two that that take place. And, and my guess would be that if you if you have one that kind of feels like a steamroll, there might be a lack of relationship that's there, uh, a lack of interconnectedness with the people that's uh, really a necessity to know how to deal you know with those and and so what i would say and, and this is actually more of something that i would say is more toward the congregation than i would say toward the leadership although it can be toward the leadership too sometimes we can detach our leadership and not see them as members of the same church right? We can take our pastors and treat them as if they're a different category within uh, the same church. And therefore, I don't have to get to know their families as well. And we need to know how they're doing. That can create a relational tension that that uh, accentuates 
you know, when they're having to deal with hard conversations and they're dealing with it in a biblical way, they've lost that relationship or, or they don't have that strong relationship created and therefore can seem like it, it comes off more harsh because you don't understand the heart of the people that are there because you're disconnected relationally. So there has to be a fidelity towards scripture on the one end, but there has to be a real relationship with the leadership. It can't just be, oh, they're my leaders. I go to them only when bad things happen. And if that's the way that you treat your leadership, it's going to be very easy to be divorced from that, creating that dichotomy that you just talked about. You know, the idea of, of, of either being too friendly uh, and over overseeing, uh, overlooking sin that needs to be dealt with or too harsh because they're never around one another, you know, to see them as people. Yeah. And I I want to really emphasize something you said there, because what we don't want to do is wait until the crisis to be known by the leadership. That's kind of what I hear you saying in that. Mm -hmm. Rather, Absolutely. we have to be intentional about being known by these people, walking with them in the good times too, the celebratory times, um, as so that there's a foundation of a relationship so that when we go through the harder times, there's some resources there to, to draw upon. But far too often, I think in our American megachurch model, we don't, we don't even know who the elders are like, and we don't, mm -hmm. we're not even really sure that they know our names and right. we're not, walking with them we're not in small groups with them we're not hanging out and going to coffee or or checking in with each other out on the plaza between services there's not this structure in our lives to be known in the day-to-day -day. and so then what i see all the time the heartbreaking letters and this is largely why i'm doing this series of teachings because people write to us when their lives are falling apart, they write to parachurch ministries and the letters are heartbreaking because you, you start to see these people aren't, they're attending church. They've chosen a church because they like the worship. Maybe they're plugged into a small group, but they do not have proper discipleship and connection with their leadership team. The person they need to be going to talk to is their elder, not me. I, I can refer them to a, a video or a book or something general, but they need somebody in their life that can bring those general principles to bear on their specific situation. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? No, it's absolutely true. And I, and I think that that becomes a challenge. The larger your church becomes, which could be a blessing of God. If you're in a large church, not, we're not here to argue against large churches versus small churches, but there's a challenge. And the challenge is this, the, the larger your church means you need to have more leaders or a leadership structure so that people can build strong relationships with a leader and have resources for that leader to move them, if you want to say, up the chain or something like that. But it needs to be relational in nature. I mean, even in our small congregation, I can't know everybody. I know I know all the families I believe by name in our in our congregation, but I'm limited person as a pastor. I've got about I've done studies and says about 30 people is about as as many people that I can build true relationships with. 
Well, that, you know, my church is four to five times that size. So that means four fifths of our congregation will never have a super strong relationship with me because I just can't build that many. So we, that's why you need the elders. You need the leadership there. So you have people that you can go to. And it's important that you have that opportunity to build those relationships and, and have real interaction, you know, and uh, again, one of the challenges I would, I would give to those people who are going to congregations, no matter what size it is, think of the leaders that are around you that God has placed there, whether they're your small group leaders, because you may be in a super large church, how many of them can you go and ask, you know, and, and uh, approach and know and do real life with them? You know, when was the last time you asked your small group leader about their family, about what they're doing. Every opportunity that you have to to build a personal connection with them is a deeper opportunity, believe it or not, later on down the line, when you are are in a, a theological crisis because of a situation in your life or, or something going on in your family, that you have someone to turn to because you built this up relationally first. And it's been a, a two-way street. It's not just a one-way street for the leader building everything into you, but you're also building into that leader because they're a part of the body of Christ as well. And so that's the challenge I think that that we have is to say in our leadership structure, wherever we're at in that, whether we're in a smaller church where people can know the elders and the leaderships or or there's a larger um, leadership structure beginning with small groups or something like that, that we have leaders that we can personally know and really get to know and invest life in and not treat it as just a place where I come once a week during these specific times to learn from these specific people and they pour into me, but I never pour into them. That's not, in, I don't see anything like that in in the New Testament church. Nothing like that in the New Testament church. We can look at Acts chapter two. We can look at... Um, Ephesians chapter four, we can look at first uh, Corinthians chapter 12, talking about the gifts and, and having equal concern for each of the body of Christ. We need to be super involved in each other's lives. And, and it's a two-way street. Leaders need that too. And the benefit for you as a congregant is as you build that in, then when that time comes for maybe some hard learning from the scriptures, you'll know the heart of the person who's giving it to you. And that balances those two things together. That's so good of knowing the heart of the person that's giving you the harder teaching. That's so good because otherwise it's just so easy if you're going through hard times or if somebody falls into sin or whatever, if that relationship, those bonds aren't there, taking that correction is going to be really hard because Mm -hmm. you don't have that collateral to draw on that kinship, that friendship of like, Hey, um, this is a friend who's telling me the truth. You know, as it says in the Proverbs that that friend is better than an enemy who gives you kisses, you know, Mm -hmm. that you want friends who will tell you the truth when you're in sin, but that goes a lot better when there's a strong relationship that's, that's been built there. Yeah. You Um, can, you can take it more for somebody who cares for you. you Yeah. So I want to go back to a point that you made earlier too in this conversation of you notice, have noticed over the years in ministry when things are out of order, when we look at Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, when things are not in their proper order, when we don't have God first and and our then our marriage and then our kids and 
and that ministry is down there, you know, after those things, our relationship with the Lord has to be number one, and it can't be collapsed into our ministry. I think those are all great points. Is Do you think that that's part of what has gone so wrong for some pastors these days when we hear about these, you know, problems with pastors that fall into to pretty serious habitual patterns of sin. I'm not talking about everyday sins where we're all in the struggle and we all sin and we all have issues, but habitual secret sins. Like, do you think that there's a connection when things get out of order that that shows up in our life in a certain way, even if we're in ministry? I would say absolutely. And I think I, I think the thing with leadership that's so hard and and I, I would say it's the 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 bait of Satan is to get a leader to sin and then not confess, right? Because a leader is is supposed to be above such things. So we can't have any type. If there's any type of uh, bad thing that has happened that needs to be dealt with, we just keep it quiet because we're the leader. It's it's a subtle, um, terrible sin because the the idea that satan wants us isolated and satan uses sin to isolate us he he isolates us as leaders he isolates us as individual christians you know how many times has somebody you know just a congregant you know messed up during the week has has come into church with, carrying the weight of that sin with them and every interaction that they have they they attribute to people know what's going on and they're judging me and nobody's done anything of the sort but they that that isolation of satan's tactic to isolate us because of our sin uh casts everything in that judgment and then we don't do the things that god asks us to do you know james chapter 5 verse 16 tells us that we need to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed well the more authority you have within the church the less you want to be able to say that you're a sinner that you've messed up that that you need help that you're struggling with you know that you've got a grudge against somebody or there's hatred for somebody or you're struggling with lust or or any of that um the more you talk about that weakness you've elevated yourself in a way that the scripture doesn't really say we ever get over right like as as an elder i'm still prone to those still fighting of the flesh that i have to watch out for in in my own ministry and i need people to pray for me because there have been times where i'm like I'm having a real struggle today. And if I don't admit that, or if I don't say, hey, I've messed up in this area, I, I need prayer for this area, then how am I going to get healed? I just perpetuate this problem that that continues on. And so I think that what we see in some of these more um, uh, public national ministry failures is the idea that, guess what? I failed in this area, but if I admit that I've failed in this area, then what's going to happen? And that fear Satan uses to isolate them further and keep them in that. And they're never healed because they never confess. And, and I think that's a real big problem for that. Um, like I said, this, this first Timothy chapter three passage, very personal to me because early on in the ministry, I can honestly say, I, I put the ministry even above my relationship or equated it with my relationship with God. And while our kids were real small, when my my wife was at home dealing with a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and a newborn, you know, I was gone four days a week uh, doing the ministry because I wanted to build up a great youth ministry here at, at the church that I'm at. And 
that did not serve me well. I would come home. I would leave the house in the morning before my kids were up and I would get home uh, after my kids were asleep four days a week. And that was very rough on our marriage. And my wife had to confront me on that. And because we had the biblical background of this first Timothy, you know, that buttressed our marriage from the very beginning, it was very tough, hard conversation for us to have, but it changed my ministry when we were confronted with that reality, when I was confronted with that reality that I had really moved in this wrong direction and just changed everything up to where I was gone half the time. I made sure I was home and I wasn't going to make a God out of my ministry. I was going to make sure that I had the right priorities in place. So I'm just telling you, it's not something that that I just see from them. It's something I've had to walk through personally. And I, that that First Timothy three can either be a corrective or it can be a you know a nail in the coffin of the type of ministry that God would really want from you, but you're unwilling to to walk in obedience to it. I'm just glad that you know I took that time of repentance because it served our family and and our ministry well as a result of it. Well, along those lines, let me ask you another strategy question. And, you know, I've noticed that sometimes elders can become kind of a group of yes men that are basically just there to rubber stamp the lead pastor and his vision for that church. Do you have any thoughts about that or that dynamic and and how it can potentially be overcome? That's a great question, and and I think it's one that we we sometimes don't think a lot about concerning uh, the eldership and how they are to keep accountable the pastors of the church. Uh, the reality is, while the pastor is uh, leading the spiritual direction of the church, there's still accountability that's needed from the elders. And a, a lot of this needs to be measured concerning the elders' knowledge of the Word of God, and the direction the pastor is going concerning, you know, the the direction of the church. And if there are changes to vision that, that has happened, that's where accountability needs to take place. So if the pastor begins going, say, one direction and has leading the uh, the eldership and the church in, in this spiritual direction has laid out a vision, and he deviates from that with no standing whatsoever, it's important that the, that the elders hold to account the pastor. On top of that, I think it's also important theologically that the elders are committed to holding the pastor um, accountable concerning the teaching that goes on in the pulpit. What happens when the pastor is uh, leading in a direction that might drift toward, say, progressive Christianity, or or leaning toward, you know, saying that the inerrancy of Scripture is not you know, really so, that there are errors found in the Scripture and the original manuscripts. When we start seeing those types of movements from a pastor that are away from, say, the doctrinal statements of the church, it is incumbent upon the elders to step in and not be enamored by the personality that is there. This is why accountability is so important, and it's why you have to have strong leadership in the elder board that is more concerned about the Word of God and being obedient to God than necessarily the strong personality of a pastor who may be leading them as well. Um, and there's also a recognition concerning elders that the pastor isn't gifted in every area. He might be leading the spiritual vision of the church, but the spiritual vision of the church might include facets of areas in which he is not gifted in. And if that's the case, then it is important that the elders recognize uh, those shortcomings so they can get the right people involved as well. You know, I, I think it's important that we 
make sure that pastors realize that they're not alone in leading the church, that the elders are there to be an ever-present help and an ever-present accountability. And if you can strike that balance, I think that you'll make the right um, decisions concerning when uh, to hold a pastor accountable and when not to hold them accountable. When I say not hold them accountable, it, I only mean this, that some of the complaints and some of the things that are brought to the board of elders really don't have any biblical backing. And elders also need to know that when that comes from the congregation standpoint, whenever uh, that happens there, they need to be able to talk to the congregation and say, unless there's a biblical precedent for these complaints that are coming forward, we're going to stand with the vision of the pastor. So there needs to be that strong uh, eldership uh, aspect within the context of the church to make sure that things are held true toward that vision that is ultimately, in most churches, leading toward making disciples, however God has led the pastor and the vision of that church to do so. So I hope that helps. Now, I'm imagining that, you know, the vast majority of pastors are pastors over smaller and mid-sized churches. There's only very few. It's a small mm -hmm. percentage that are in, you know, these mega churches. So let's just talk about kind of the regular, the regular people of, you know, that are in ministry slugging it out for the gospel in the smaller to mid-sized churches. I'm imagining that there needs to be a certain amount of energy and intentionality to build up future elders and deacons, to um, train them and bring them along. I know at my daughter's church, the bishop there has a four-year program that he regularly is bringing people through. And so my daughter is currently in year three of the four-year program, but this is how he builds up leaders in his church. And he's basically discipling them like, this is how you pray. This is how you read the Bible. This is this is how you fast. This is, you know, how you serve. He even did like had him do a project on, you know, their family dynamics and how that's impacted them. Walking them through these things, part of the purpose is to build up lay leaders, but also future elders and deacons. And um, that's his program. But I'm don't I feel like that's rare. <laughs> like there's a lot of churches that don't seem to have a process or structure in place for building future leadership. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how you've done that in your own church, because people get burned out. You've got to be able to rotate people on and off leadership, I would imagine. Well, I, I think it's just a matter of, you know, how I talked earlier about the idea that the I the the first thing that you really need is have a definition of what maturity is. Mm -hmm. And that definition of maturity has to be out there for the people to understand. This is what we see as maturity and growing in, in your relationship with Jesus Christ to where you're going to be given more opportunities that may lead to eldership and deaconship and, and, and the like. Um, and so the way that we define it at, at our church, it's taken us a long time to be able to do this. It's not something that I did day one. Uh, I've walked through this, you know, through the youth ministry where we're walking through this in the church and we want to be able to do much like, uh, you know, the, the people that you just talked about have, have a program that lead people up into maturity in these areas where they're, they're areas of giftedness. Um, we're not, we're not even, 
we're scratching the surface on it, but we're moving in that direction. Um, but it takes intentionality. And so just to give you an idea of what ours is, we we just recently did this to the entirety of our church to tell them this is what maturity is. This is how we define a maturing Christian in our congregation. Number one, they've read through the Bible at least one time. They've gone through the entirety of the Word of God. Number two, they walk through the three pillars of our our mission and vision as a church. And for us, it's love God, love God's people, love serving God. And very, very simply, it's um, we love God by being there on Sunday mornings. Uh, we love God's people by getting involved in a life group and being a part of a community of believers that we're diving deep in in our faith. Uh, and the third way is that we're serving within the body of the church in some manner. So we, we say, you got to be doing those three pillars. The, the third thing that we encourage them to do is the six disciplines that we focus on within our church, which is Bible reading, prayer, um, fellowship, outreach and service, discipleship and giving. Those are the six areas that we focus on. So all these are biblical based. Mm -hmm. And so if you're doing, and then the fourth thing we look for is that you have a desire to see those things replicated in somebody else, right? To walk them through the word of God, to have them, you know, being part of the body of believers in, in fellowship on a weekly basis in life group and, and serving in some area and that they can also do these six disciplines. That's how we know that you're maturing as a believer in Christ. And so if you're doing those things, and of course, nobody does all of those things perfectly at all times, but if you're doing those things, this is how we identify that you're maturing, that you're ready for more, that we can put you in positions that will be uh, of greater capacity, you know, whether it's teaching kids in our Sunday school classes or, or our, for us, we don't have Sunday school, we have children's church, um, but we have kids who are going to be learning in those areas, right? Or you're going to be involved in, in the youth ministry as a sponsor or, or something like that. These are the things we're looking for to move you into those positions, right? And uh, those are how, what we're looking for for our life group leaders so that we have maturing people who are, who are showing themselves that they want to be involved in other people's lives in a way that grows them to maturity. So these are the markers that we look for personally. And then it's from these life group leaders, which are kind of like these, these many places where you have a leader or two sets of leaders there shepherding a small group of people. That becomes their kind of, if you will, mini congregation. Those are the people they're going to be connected with. Those are the people they're doing life with. Those are the people that when things are going on, they go to those leaders there. And if those leaders can't handle it, they kind of go up the chain from there to the elders and and uh, and the like for those who can help uh, for tougher situations and finding the resources for that. But these are the people that are really being trained up to be elders because they're already shepherding people in a smaller context. And so we, we've come to a point where we're taking our leaders uh, and as far as elders from those who are in teaching positions in shepherding positions in a smaller capacity, because it gives them more experience without throwing them into the deep end of the water saying, well, now we're going to have you do the whole church. And we know you haven't really shepherded anybody on your own yet, but now you're going to take care of everybody. And that's hard even for, uh, you know, if you got a business leader background who might be actually better suited to be a deacon than an elder, you know, that that's something that that doesn't work itself out very well. If you're throwing him into the deep end and hoping that he's going to be a good elder when he's really more suited to be a deacon instead, you know, so 
That's really good. I, I'm thinking there since you brought up small groups. I'm actually glad you brought that up. It wasn't in our questions, but I would like to tease that out a little bit more because one of my concerns, ongoing concerns about the small group model is that you do have people that are kind of functioning as I'm going to call them micro shepherds or mini shepherds, you know, as leaders. But, and maybe this was just true to the context that I, that we were in at a particular church, but how they recruited small group leaders was like, hey, if you have a home and you're able to play a DVD, you can, you can lead a small group. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that's the best approach to recruiting because these are these are almost like acting as the first point of contact for new Christians who are jumping into a group, Christians who have lapsed from the faith and are trying to come back, long timers who are stagnant in their faith or struggling in their marriage or have a kid who's deconstructing. Those small group leaders do act as first co- points of contact for help shepherding in that capacity, even if they don't have the official title of elder, they're acting in a leadership capacity in some way. But in the context we were in, there was no training or leadership instruction for small group leaders. Do you think even at the small group leadership recruitment level, we should be thinking of them as real leaders, not just pressing play on a DVD or having the spiritual gift of hospitality and being able to open their homes. Absolutely. I think because with without a vision for understanding how that connects to making disciples, we're just, you know, kind of doing what we've always done, right? And and that's what a lot of churches, we do this because we've been doing this for 20 years. And instead of saying, What's the reason why we're doing this? That has to be understood and in, in, in each step of the way, if you're trying to be intentional about growing leaders up. And so, yes, that, that means you need to train them. We shouldn't just throw somebody into the deep end of the pool, you know, for doing that. I know that if people were to come to our, if we were going to approach somebody for leadership in a life group, for example, we have specific trainings that they have to go through. Right now, we've done, I've got eight teachings that they have to go through. Each of those are about at least 30 minutes long. Some are close to an hour long for them to go through. So you're getting between six and, and eight hours worth of training that gives you the the baseline of, number one, how to lead a small group. Number two, what you're looking to do as a small group leader. Uh, so you're learning how to facilitate small groups. You're learning how to identify future leaders. You're giving them all all of the those next steps that they're looking for that they're not they're not doing this just to quote unquote the best of their ability and whatever comes next on their mind that there's an actual strategy that the leader should be having toward making those people mature based upon the standards of what a maturing believer is that's why all these definitions are so important otherwise we just kind of set up and make these things up as we go and just because we're doing this in our church your your church may be somewhat different but by not defining those standards what you're doing is you're just kind of meandering and hoping 
and that you're pointing out who that that next mature person is, not based upon any standards, but based upon just the eye test, if you will. You know, they look like they might be a leader. And, and, and the reason why it's really good that the scripture is so clear in setting out this is what leadership is, is it gives people something to aspire to. You know, that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he who aspires to be an overseer, you know, he desires a good thing. This is not right. bad. And therefore, here are the standards that you're to aspire to. This is what we ought to be doing in every level of leadership. Here's, here's what it means to be a life group leader. We want you to aspire to this, but these are the standards. And, and that's what we need a little bit more of in our churches rather than, you know, because a lot of small churches, we're, we're oftentimes we're like, but we need help. We need help in this area and we need help in that area. Let's just, I'm just happy to get anybody. And we need to not have that standard. We really don't. If that means some ministries or some portions of things go away until we build that up, that might be healthier for our church. It really might be. And we yeah. need to consider that. Monique and I have a very rigorous theology of like not being in a scarcity mindset about God's provision, not only about money, but about people. And we mm -hmm. actively will pray very specifically, you know, for people with certain expertise, we prayed to the Lord about a year ago to send us a judge. And he did. He sent us the first black woman on the Pennsylvania Superior Court. She's an amazing Christian with an awesome, rigorous Christian worldview that she can help consult with us about legal um, issues related in the justice system. And, you know, talking about that, we are very specific in our request to the Lord. We need this kind of leadership. We need this kind of provision. You know, this is this is what we need in order for the ministry to function. I would love to see more pastors pray specifically rather than just, well, if you're breathing and you can press the play button, you know, you're in, you're in leadership, you know, you're a small group leader. Like, I don't, to me, that's such a scarcity mindset of what we're doing in the local church. No, we're trying to disciple people we're trying to grow christians we need to trust the lord and he's going to provide that leadership so jeremy Absolutely. tell us about Absolutely. your ministry the next generation what you guys are doing what you're about and how people can follow your work there well the next generation ministries is uh something we created a, a few years ago now and the purpose of this is to help equip parents to disciple their kids you know, a lot of uh, what we have in in the local church kind of keeps parents out of the loop of discipleship. And, and parents oftentimes are like, well, I'd love to disciple my kids, so I'm just going to take them to church. But God wants you to be doing so much more than that. And I think parents, in much the same way, we've been talking about these, these standards that are right here. Parents would live up to standards if they just knew what the standards were, right? What am I supposed to do next? Well, what we've done over the last few years is create some uh, opportunities for parents to know what that next step is, no matter what age your child is, to be able to say they can do this and you can have confidence that you can teach this to your children and grow them at a rate that is commensurate to their learning time at, at school. We want their faith to be just as robust as the education 
education that they're getting at school, whether you're homeschooling or sending them off to school, you know, in private or public school in, in that area. So what we do is we try to uh, partner with churches to help change the culture of the church to make sure that the parents are the primary disciplers of their kids and not necessarily the programs of the church. And so you can get in contact with us by going to thenextgenerationministries.com. Uh, from there, we have blueprints that are free PDF form. We we want to equip parents. And if you want to have us over at your church to do, to talk about changing this culture in your church and equipping parents within your congregation, you can request us to come to your church. We would love to come and do a conference for you guys and, and help change that culture. I'll warn you ahead of time, the, the conferences we do are not like your little rah-rah conferences. Um, <laughs> That, that happened for two or three days and you get the spiritual high and you're, you kind of walk away from it. We're really trying to build a foundation uh, of faith. So we challenge you strongly on it. And, and we want to re re let you recognize if you bring this into your church, it will take years for you to see those results, but those results will be long-term results that you wouldn't change for the world. I promise you that. Yeah. You've been so helpful in um, solidifying a lot of thoughts I've had over the years and putting things into words that I struggled to articulate. And I think our collaboration has just been such a wonderful thing and helping me in my own podcasting. And people don't realize that, I, you know, I'm ripping off a lot of Jeremy Bannister in in my content because you've our conversations behind the scenes and ways that you've helped me grow and challenged me um, that fruit, you know, it, it is that's bearing fruit in in this ministry, and so I want to encourage people that Jeremy's he's not going to play footsie with you and affirm all your feelings, but he will tell you the truth about how to change your church culture and to to have lasting fruit in your discipleship efforts with young people. So, thank you so much, Jeremy, for doing this conversation with me. You're always a wonderful dialogue partner, and I really hope people will go check out your ministry. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on here, and I look forward, more, forward to more of our conversations, even behind the scenes. So. Yeah, definitely. All right. See ya. All right. I'm going to leave you with one final thought. You know, when I, whenever I visit a church, and we've been going through our own church transition as a family uh, since the pandemic, it's hard, y'all. I think I shared this in a previous stream. It is hard, but I want to encourage you to get committed to being in a local church. Get committed to thinking about your own process of discipleship and how you are going to disciple your, your family and all of the conversations we've been having this summer um, along these lines. I really hope you'll go back and check out those discussions on discipleship, the local church, all of that is going somewhere. <laughs> I want to encourage you. I know I am going against the cultural grain, even in the church, of this migratory posture, the anonymous posture of just going and sitting in the back of the mega church for one hour a week and thinking you're doing church. I'm hoping that over the course of these teachings, I'm building out more of the picture of the New Testament of what it truly means to be a Christian and how to walk in the ways of the Lord. But I know there can be a temptation to opt out, to remain anonymous and do the easy thing. I also know that there is sometimes a temptation 
to choose churches just simply based on the worship. You like the worship team, nice and upbeat, you know, or you really like the storytelling of the pastor. Um, or for some people, they're just looking for faithful doctrine. And I want to encourage you in every way I can to consider looking at the character, the spiritual maturity of the leadership as also an extremely important variable in your walk as an individual, in, in supporting your family, in their walk, and how you will contribute and participate to the life of the local church. I hope you found this teaching helpful today. I hope you will share it with your friend, family members, your pastor, share the word. And um, I do look forward to your feedback. Let me know how these series of teachings on discipleship that I've been doing this summer uh, have been striking you. What are you learning? What are you gaining from all of this? And what questions do you still have? So please write to me and reach out and let me know. Good day and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.